0: Hello, and welcome to episode two of season 10. In this episode, I have two Australian architects who are bringing their industry insider insights to you and from both sides of the country with very different careers. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee, Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Now, I've got a slightly longer episode for you this week as I wanted to bring these interviews together because I believe these that both of these architects share a huge wealth of knowledge and experience and what you're going to learn will really benefit you in your renovation or new build project. Now, my first guest on this episode is Christopher McGowan of McGowan Architectural or M-A and that's a Melbourne-based firm and my second guest is Susie Hunt of Suzanne Hunt Architect which is an architectural practice based in Perth and working throughout Western Australia. So firstly, let me tell you about Chris. I was actually introduced to Chris via my guest from last week, Anthony Laney of Laney LA. The two of them attended college together in the States. And at the end of my conversation with Anthony, he said, oh, you know, I have this colleague and friend in, in uh, Melbourne, would you like to be introduced to him? And it was fantastic because I'd actually, I'd seen McGowan Architectural's work on Instagram and online and uh, I had come into contact with them via one of my courses actually one of my members was having their project designed by them and so I was really excited to be able to meet Chris and uh, to get that introduction and had such a fantastic conversation with him so it's going to be really great to bring it to you here on the podcast now, for over a decade, Chris McGowan, director of m A, has passionately dedicated himself to the study, teaching and practice of architecture, design and development. He earned his degree uh, from the University of Southern California in 2008, where he received numerous honours, scholarships, grants and awards. Acting as owner, designer and developer, he actually completed his first built work prior to graduating university, which is just crazy that somebody could fit that in, in such a demanding course. And since then, he's been in involved in projects ranging from bar and cafe fit-outs to single-family homes, uh, right through to 50-unit mixed-use developments. Prior to starting M-A, Christopher cut his teeth working for award-winning architecture practices in LA, London and Melbourne. And Christopher has taught multiple design and construction studios at the University of Melbourne and Monash University at both undergraduate and graduate levels, as well as serving as a guest critic in architecture for several different courses. Now, McGowan Architecture was established in 2009, and it's a talented team of architects that are united by a desire for excellence. M-A is less about a singular style. Instead, they're committed to the specifics of each project and creating timeless spaces. Each project brings its own complexities and parameters, which they carefully respond to by understanding their clients and how they want to interact with their spaces, and in turn, how their spaces will interact with M. M-A brings to the table expertise in architecture, planning, interior design and development and whether the goals of a project are practical, emotional, financial or all three, they will work with you to create a well-balanced outcome which maximizes your resources. I loved having a conversation with Chris, really fantastic, so I hope you love it too. Let's dive into the interview. Well, Chris, it's fantastic to have you here. I'm. Uh, we actually got connected via Anthony Laney, which was quite serendipitous because I was looking for a Victorian-based architect to bring onto the podcast, and uh, it was fantastic to have the introduction to you. So, I'm, and having explored more about your work and seeing the types of projects that you do and your philosophy in design and. Uh, just as a as a practice too, how much built work you have under your belt? It's uh, it's really exciting to have you here on the podcast. So thanks very much for joining me. Can I ask you about McGowan Architecture, your practice? How how did you know? Why did you begin it, and and what do you most enjoy about having your own practice here?
1: I think you know, I was I was always. Aiming to have my own practice. I think even back in architecture school, it wasn't something that I fell into. My dad's a small business owner back in LA. Um, I saw the kind of highs and lows of that. And you know, maybe somewhat insanely decided to follow. Um, and you know, I think being in a creative industry, there's a certain element where you want to have some element of control um, and, and have your ideas get built. And working in a few firms, some bigger, some smaller. Um, definitely saw my ideas get over the line a bit more in the smaller format, but it's still, you know, it's just that another layer of, of challenge to kind of realize some of the the ideas in your head. So, you know, practice was a good avenue for that. Um, and, you know, a degree of flexibility, although in practice, having a small business is <laughs> you can't quit. So, you, and, and no one really kind of takes the throttle off in terms of hours. So, maybe that that part of it hasn't been quite as anticipated. But um, yeah, and I I think also, um, I did a a project when I was 22, still at university. Um, It was like a development, I purchased land, I was kind of like the poster child for the financial crisis where I got a loan I probably shouldn't have, and then got another loan to build something out the back that I probably shouldn't have. But it was a, a good experience and kind of my first, Renovation and you know first design realized and to get that done at at such a young age was was kind of formative and and slightly addictive and so that probably is is another part of why I decided to to go out on my own.
0: Yeah, I think your story is quite similar to many architects who start their own businesses and uh, it is tricky, isn't it? Because you sort of create this this uh business that can be used as a vehicle to explore your design philosophies and find clients that you want to work with on projects you want to work with but at the same time there's a whole business aspect to it isn't it that you know you've got to keep this machine being fed and <laughs> and if you've got staff keep them busy as well so i take uh i take my hat off to every um small business architectural practice because it's a lot to juggle when you're just actually a creative at heart and want to do great work in the world so yeah
1: yeah well i relate to
0: that <laughs> <laughs> Now, when I was looking through your projects, I saw some really beautiful commonalities and themes to the way that uh, ideas were being ex- explored through the designs, which I always love seeing in an architect's work because it becomes this kind of signature. Um, uh, not a, not I don't want to use the word style because it's it's mo- it's got more substance than that. But it's really this kind of set of ideas that get explored and really developed over years and years in practice. And I saw some really strong commonalities in your work um, and wanted to just talk with, through with you, sort of if they if they're I suppose intentional or if they're just something that comes to you. I suppose unconsciously in the way that you go about your work. One of the ones that I really saw was this exploration of volume and using different uh, ceiling heights and the way that spaces were shaped, sort of tall, thin spaces with high-level lighting in them and um, offsetting that against a lower space and, and really using that, I suppose, to identify... Uh, rooms within an open plan space or circulation zones is is this something that you deliberately explore how do you use volume in your work and you know what would you encourage other homeowners to think about with this idea of volume because I think a lot of people just they draw rectangles and squares on a page and then they just elevate that they just whack a a ceiling across the top of it and they lose this beautiful opportunity that volume can do to enhance a living experience how do you go about it in your work
1: I think Homeowners, especially, you know, we as architects, we're, we think in 3D, we can close our eyes, we can kind of walk around the space before it exists, um, and that you're not necessarily born with that, you kind of, you learn it over the years. Homeowners typically, unless they're already in the, in the industry, come to me with the kind of, you know, ruled paper and, and the boxes that you describe and say, look, I've already done the hard part, here's the floor plan, you know, can you give me a discount? Uh, um, surely, surely it's all downhill from here. And I think what we as architects are able to do is, again, we're looking at all these variables, not just, you know, how many bedrooms do you want, say, or or the simple kind of tick box items of a brief. And, you know, most projects are actually better started in section. at least in where I work. So I I do a lot of inner urban stuff and space is at a premium, right? And so I would approach a a house out in a paddock differently than I would something that's like an inner city Richmond, where it's a postage stamp site, but they've spent $2 million on the land and, and every square meter matters. Um, And so in that instance, you know, we probably have less constraints sectionally than we do in plan. Uh, And so it's about trying to make a small footprint feel larger and kind of add a sense of hierarchy to the spaces. So we know that we can't kind of, you know, gild every single space in the house. And so, you know, the the knee jerk and the common and probably the the right approach is, you know, get that family living area to work. That's where you're going to live, spend your time, you know, make your memories. And so that might be the space where you really want to get, you know, the daylighting, the connection to the outdoors, um, the kind of flow, the the spatial organization of the way the furnishings are going to be. You want to kind of nail that. Um, not at whatever cost, but that's where you want to you want to swing your budget that way. Um, and then if your bedrooms have to be paired back, if your bathrooms even have to be paired back, then that's generally the value judgment. Everyone's got their different value judgment. But that's where that sectional height might change. So we'll be stuck with an orientation, and it might be that the back garden is to the south, it happens a lot, um, but we don't want to, you know, sacrifice a connection to that garden and have poor daylighting. And so that, that kind of volume might be a way that we're able to get clear story lighting in to get light from the north, even though we're facing south. It might be a courtyard. Um, and it, it simply might just be an architectural statement uh, or a spatial statement where, you know, this is the important space of the house. It, it's, it's there to make an impact. And and if we can't go horizontally larger, then we can certainly go vertically. And you, that kind of feeling of volume is, is what we're trying to create as opposed to just pure square meterage.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic insight. And I love the point about Investing your budget where it's actually going to matter and make a difference in sort of the way that you live in your home and the primary spaces that you spend most of your time in. So, because I think we can get a bit trapped in this, oh my gosh, we've got to have the beautiful ensuite, when really we're probably spending, you know, max half an hour in there a day, particularly people with a family. <laughs> so, and, <Yeah. laughs> and yet the space that you hang out in all the time, um, you know, and that you, you do make a lot of memories in over the long term um, can make such a big difference in terms of inspiring you and lifting you up. And, and Helping you feel restored and relaxed when it's designed intentionally and, and thinking about that type of thing. So, I, yeah, when I saw I saw how design and your designs were really sort of playing with this idea of bringing light in and 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 really optimizing that daylighting, regardless of the orientation of the site. Um, I thought it was just such a fantastic example of what's possible when you do approach a design from that from that um, angle and really prioritize those decisions rather than just going well we've just got this site and we've got the garden here and this is what we're going to have to do so I think it's um yeah it's really it's a great example of what's possible. The other thing I really noticed in your work was how you've used windows and glazing the you know a lot of people will just go okay we're going to just make the connection between inside and outside completely disappear and we're going to have these great big walls of glass and of course that then brings about structural challenges because you don't have any walls to hold your house up with. <laughs> and <I> mean, yes. <laughs> just skyhooks. Skyhooks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and I think that the the power of a window to frame and shape a view really intentionally often gets vastly underestimated when people go about how they think about their design. Do you see this in your work? Is this something that you're intentionally doing in terms of shaping and framing those views? Is it about privacy on those very small, compact, you know, denser sites? How are you sort of thinking about your windows and your utilizing design
1: um i think it goes back to that initial question of of the kind of streamline or the the line between all of our projects And, and really hopefully through all good architects projects it's that contextual understanding you know we don't necessarily get full control over the finishes or you know all the kind of bits and bobs that go into a building but we do control the way we respond to the context and that can make or break a project um, and so that is understanding orientation, understanding views, and how to kind of maximize the good bits of, of a site and minimize the bad bits of a site. Um, and, you know, where the stakes are so high, you know, financially and culturally and emotionally, um, you, you want to get those big brushstrokes right. And then, you know, if you've chosen the wrong bench top, you've chosen the wrong bench top, and it'll be pulled out five years later. Um, it's not what you want to do, but it, it's a lot harder to flip a building 180 degrees. And if your building can be flipped 180 degrees and still work, it's not a good design.
0: (laughs) Bingo. (laughs) No, that's awesome. And I, you know, I'll put links to your projects uh, in the show notes and in the blog because I think there's some fantastic examples that people can really take some inspiration from in how you've thought about this optimising of the site and um, thinking about the, 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 those big brushstrokes and the things that you really want to capture and celebrate about a site versus the things that you want to downplay. So now I wanted to talk to you about, uh, well, it's, it's always spelt out h.i.g.h.x5. So is it just, do you just say hi x5? Is that what you call that project?
1: Yeah, or Hive by Five. (laughs) Hive by Five. It's an obnoxious name. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: awesome. Now, this was a development that you did, and it's got your home and your office in it. Can you tell us a bit more about the project? You know, uh, I mean, that was a big, it's obviously a big thing to embark on financially, um, professionally, um, you know, to obviously create your own living environment as an architect is a pretty big commitment as well. That's sort of like a, you know, I'm building my my uh, CV as well as my own home for my family where I get to live permanently in a space that they tell me if I stuffed up or not. So. <laughs> how did you you know why did you go about doing this and and uh what motivated you to take on a project like that
1: it's a it's a pretty long question to unpack to be honest um and i'll, I'll do it honestly so i mean the the drive to develop goes all the way back to that first development that i did and when i was 22 you know you kind of recover and then you're like oh okay that wasn't so bad i'll try it again um you know the reality of, of both of those projects and I, and, you know, I think most homeowners, if you were to sit around with them afterwards, like they're they're intense, like any renovation, any build is is pretty emotionally involving. It's training yourself to kind of stabilize your, your mind when when things aren't going right. Um, and then, you know, it's, maybe it's akin to childbirth and that once you're done, you, you forgot. And then you're like, let's let's go back for another. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that was certainly the case here. Um, there's a lot of things I got right, and there's a lot of things I got wrong. Um, the things I got right, like the spaces are, are fantastic to live in. Like there's the way the sun kind of moves around the house, the, the way that we are able to adapt to our space, um, you know, raise our family here and, you know, entertain. And, you know, there's a lot of like little moments of joy and details that I was able to get in, some of which I built like with my own hands, which is good and bad because, there's better craftsmen out there than me, but um, but there's also a sense of satisfaction in having built something yourself. Um, things I got wrong, I naively went for the cheapest tender, and at the time I didn't realize how much cheaper it was, but looking back, it was probably $400,000 less than what it needed to be, which is not a lot. Yes, too much. Um, and... The reality is, you, the cheapest tender doesn't work out. It's a cliche, but they don't finish the job, and in this case, he didn't even finish the frame. And so I was—I started construction on this building, which I also would not recommend. The same week that my two twin daughters were born, um, don't do that. It's not good. <laughs> um, and so here I am with, with two kind of infant children and no builder, and my entire life savings on the line. I um, and. Kind of went back out to Tender to, to see what the market was going to do to clean up my mess, essentially. And the market was punishing me. <laughs> Fair enough. It was nobody wants to clean up somebody else's mess. And so I had to clean up my mess. And so I had to build it from frame stage, never really having built much myself. Um, managing trades all the kind of finances involved um staying ahead of of things when things went off schedule and then kind of throughout the staging of the construction it just became overwhelming I mean we got there in the end but it was the most challenging experience of my life (laughs) um and there's there's been many rewards on the back end of it so I, I don't you know I don't regret the experience and I certainly the lessons learned have been you know formative um but you know, I'm I'm now able to to I guess more clearly understand construction costs. So as architects, we start out probably just thinking square meter rates, and then we get tenders back and it's like, how can this be? You know, <laughs> how can it possibly be nine hundred thousand dollars for a three three bedroom house? Who's you know who's pillaging here? But then going through the process and, you know, going out and getting the, the three or four quotes for each trade, negotiating with them, seeing what it takes, and then doing some of the work yourself, you, you develop a sense of empathy and understanding of that process and why the costs are what they are, especially to do the job well. Um, and so that was something that I gained very clear insight on firsthand, um... And, you know, sickly enough, I've decided to, to go back and try it again. So so I guess it wasn't too bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just don't throw a baby into the mix this time. <laughs> no,
1: yeah. Yeah, no, family of four is good, I think.
0: <laughs> no, well, I mean, I have to commend you because it is. It's a huge undertaking, particularly a project of that size. I, I mean, it's a, to add in the office and, the, you know, um, the, the multi-story, compo- you know, m- oh, I suppose, Construction of it, a whole new kettle of fish in terms of what you're undertaking. I think, though, I often say to the UA community uh, if you want to find a good architect, find an architect who's worked on their own project because it's an entirely different process as an architect, when you're spending your own money, actually standing there and seeing what it takes to put together those details and those designs that you've been drawing as lines on a page and, you know, really understanding the physical implications of what you're creating and the financial implications of it as well. And then tying up, I suppose, your own emotions and your own mental kind of headspace into that too I mean we've done three renovations of our own the last one was a hundred square meter house we turned into over a 400 square meter house we had a baby every renovation all my kids learned to climb ladders before they walked you know it's it's not for the faint-hearted but I think it is my, yeah. <laughs> my husband and I sat down and I was did this exercise once of going, okay can we just go through all of the things on those three projects that we stuffed up or that we the, you know the decision that you always recommend against like taking the cheapest quote or you know that just did not turn out well or you know but when you're sitting there and you're going well there's this much difference but financially but you can see why people choose the cheapest quote you know it, against all good advice they still choose it and we've done it ourselves and it always t- went pear-shaped and you know so and uh and we I think we wrote out this list we we're on a long car trip somewhere and we got to about number 30 and I just went no I can't do it let's just stop let's just stop I'd forgotten I'd forgotten all of <laughs> this <in> <laughs> <laughs> so, and every time we get itchy because you know it is I think it gets in your blood you, just this idea of being able to create and have that a hands-on involvement in creating these spaces and you being the financier of it is very different to working with a client and it's such a good learning ground for a designer and an architect that, yeah, you do, you do sort of um, get bitten by the bug and want to go back to it, don't you? So I, I take my hat off to you that you're having another go. I, I wanted to ask you lastly, I just, it's just been such a fantastic chat. You've shed so many nuggets of wisdom and experience. And, um, you know, I know the UI community will find this incredibly helpful. If you could tell homeowners one thing about what you'd love or three things or 10 things. <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> what would you love them to know uh, about designing, building and renovating when they first pick up the phone to contact you or another architect or even go straight to it? I see a lot of homeowners doing their own designs and then going straight to a builder. That seems to be a pretty um, common thing in Australia. So what would you, what would be your message to homeowners who are embarking on this journey?
1: I'll start out with just kind of piggybacking on what you said, and, and it is a cliche, but it's true. of The building industry, um, for and for life, but certainly in the building industry, like trust and relationships are, are big. Um, establishing trust, doing the right thing by you know the people you're engaging with. So that means even though you're the client, you have to do the right thing by the architect, by the builder, and they need to do the right thing by you. A track record. So establishing, you know, have they kind of pulled similar projects off successfully? Talk to the previous clients of of the builder, of the architect, of the tiler if you if you need to. You know, don't get overly pedantic, because I think the builders will, you know, lose their mind a little bit. But within reason, do your do your research and, and do a lot of it. Sometimes I see people choosing builders, choosing architects the way they'd shop for shoes or a car, and it's just not enough. The kind of first meeting I have with most clients after they've engaged us talks about the brief. Um, if you really want a good outcome, if you are going down a the path of a designer or an architect uh, the way to get the best outcomes is to brief very clearly don't prescribe brief and and the difference between that is uh, an important one so if you're going to be just saying you know i need the kitchen to be 3.5 meters wide i need you know six lineal meters of benchtop space my bedroom needs to be exactly five and a half meters by four meters my tv must be in the southwest corner that's not briefing that's prescribing um, you're not, it's not worth hiring an architect to do that. Um, and even worse is when that prescription starts coming later in the design process, like in working drawings, if you're interested in a good outcome, it Every architect and designer who's has made it anywhere in, in this game cares about the outcome. Like it's it's just a given. So they're not trying to kind of shove something down your throat. They're not trying to create something bad, <laughs> for lack of a better word. We're trying to create something as as great as we can, um, and we're trying to adapt to your brief. You know, and so be very clear about what your objectives are. You know, what are what are your values? What do you value highly? What do you value, you know, not as highly. Um, and then try in the very, and this is really hard, but try to reconcile your budget and your brief in the concept stage. It's easy to say. It's very hard to do. Um, again, we're all optimists. And the amount of times I sat around the table, put an opinion and probable costs across the table and said, look, if you're not comfortable with this, we need to shrink the building. And the clients are just kind of, and then not every client, but a lot of clients will kind of sit there in denial and go, well, no. Uncle Joe did it, you know, for two hundred thousand dollars less last year, and so we want to kind of naively muscle ahead, try not to do that because, <laughs> you know, there's there's so many there's so many factors that you know the dinner table conversation of what someone spent for their their house is such a limited one. You don't ever know what's included, and the worst is when you you kind of worked towards one budget, one kind of brief, and and they don't kind of marry up at the end. And an architect should be able to kind of reconcile those for you. But sometimes there's the kind of personalities of the client where, you know, they want it all. And, I, and we want to kind of give it all, but we don't have a magic wand. And so if you're able to kind of reconcile that briefing aspect with the budget early on and be re- realistic, you know, maybe you don't need that fourth bedroom. You'd like it, but you don't need it. Um, and that means that you can get the kitchen that you want. Or maybe you don't care about the kitchen, you know, but you do care about the fourth bedroom. And then we know that we're going to just go for something really basic there. Have those frank conversations early on. Um, as opposed to just kind of having this idea that you're gonna insanely test the market and then if you're 500 grand over budget, you're gonna, you're gonna end up like me on my project. <laughs> so that would be, that would be you know, one tip. The, the briefing distinction between prescribing and briefing is, is another huge one. Um, and just to kind of crystallize that, and I don't know how much of this you cover in, in your course, but um, there's so many variables in a building and in the design. It's, there's what you want, there's the budget, there's what's allowable from a planning perspective, from a BCA perspective, what's buildable, what materials are readily available, is it going to structurally stand up, on and on and on and on. And architects, we kind of got these like bubbles just floating around in our head all the time of, of all of those things, and we're trying to kind of mush them together. And the second you move to that kind of prescription-based thing, where it's just like, oh, just move that wall 200 mil, you, you might be solving one problem, but creating six others… Whereas we might have just put that wall 100 mil different because it's going to line up with a column or it's going to line up with a beam or it's, you know, a, a statutory requirement. Um, and we're trying to kind of solve all of these variables as best we can as opposed to thinking about one aspect. And unless they're quite experienced clients, the my experience would be that they tend to think on one track and they go, well, I've got this problem. My bedroom's 100 mil too small. Um I know how to fix it. I'll make it 100 mil bigger. And they might not think about the flow on impacts. And I think the better projects are cohesive in that there is a degree of trust in the designer to to take that brief and translate it to site and kind of, you know, solve all of these um, nebulous and ever-changing variables of a building design.
0: Yeah, I think that's awesome advice. And I think that there were so many, yeah, so many golden sort of tips in there because that thing of that you describe of that prescription you know in in the courses I actually have a brief builder that helps basically take homeowners through the process of creating a brief and I've had architects get in touch with, with me when members have taken this brief to their designers and they've said this is fantastic because it actually tells me how this homeowner wants to live in the home it's about feeling it's about functionality it's about what special items it needs to include it's not about I need this bedroom to be x by x you know and I think that those things are still you want to know particularly if you're not working with an experienced designer you want to know that they've done the right thing that your bedroom's going to fit a queen size bed and some bedside tables and you know so to have those things to test but it is that thing of you don't understand how an architect's necessarily bringing all of those jigsaw, jigsaw pieces together and if you've if you've chosen an architect that you don't have or a designer that you don't have a fantastic, collaborative, trusting, communicative relationship with and the two of you can't talk and you don't feel like they're confidently explaining those things to you and you can't ask the right questions or feel brave enough to question their design, then it's this horrible kind of stalemate of, oh, I don't know whether they've really understood how I want this house to be. And I see homeowners really hesitate because they feel like they're criticising an artist's personal expression you know and forgetting that it's actually their home that they're funding in the process so it's like oh I don't want to offend them and it's like hang on like an arch- a good architect won't be offended this is it, it, they'll know that they've not done their job properly to explain this to you and that the you know something sort of needs to be built and restored in the relationship so and that piece that you said about testing the market with the with the budget oh my gosh the number of times i've heard clients say that that's what they said to their architect oh we'll just give it a go let's just see because x did their project for that much last year and and it is it's just if you're ignoring the early advice that you're getting on cost it's never going to get it's not like it's going to get any cheaper (laughs) And and it is that thing of too. a lot of i see a lot of architects and designers really hesitant and nervous to speak to their clients regularly about cost and i think when you've been doing this for a fair few years you do get firmer and stronger and more confident about saying to your clients, no, you, you can't afford this,
1: this. you know,
0: this needs to, but there's something needs to give here. We're not, we're not going to be able to make this match. Um, And you're much better at putting your foot down and saying, look, you said you wanted this, but this is how much you've got to spend. Have you got some hidden bucket of money somewhere I don't know about? You know, you can, you can be more confident about those candid conversations, but if you're new and younger or not as experienced or just nervous and not able to have those." those kinds of conversations then as a designer, you really need to figure out how you're going to do that because it becomes – it's such a critical – like it's the key point of disappointment, isn't it? It's like they're notorious in the industry. Designers always do things that are far too expensive. So I think, yeah, I think that we need to understand as an industry – that that, that's such a big part of how we need to help our clients and homeowners need to know that if they're hiring a designer who's giving them advice that they can't afford to build what they want to, that they listen to that advice and build in those mechanisms to test and check the design along the way, like bringing builders on board in their team or getting those cost estimates done along the way so that they're always checking that the design is developing in accordance with what they can spend on it. So... Chris, you have been such a joy to speak to. I'm so grateful for all of the advice that you've given. There's just been just such um, wisdom. So I really, really appreciate your time and your generosity in, uh, in sharing all of your information with the UA community.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for, thank you for reaching out. It's, it's been really fun. And um, yeah, I can see that, that you get it. It's kind of like talking to an old colleague here. And it's been, been really nice. So. Awesome. so thank you again.
0: Thanks, Chris wasn't that awesome? I'm always amazed when someone's managed to cram so much into their career, including doing projects of their own, which are, you know, they're just the ultimate training ground for an architect. So I really hope that you enjoyed that interview and the learnings that Chris shared from his own projects and from working with clients. Now, I can't wait to introduce my second guest for this interview, Susie Hunt. Susie is an award-winning architect based in Western Australia, and she she founded her own practice, Suzanne Hunt Architect, in 2004. 4 cool. Suzanne Hunt Architect is a boutique architectural and interior design practice specialising in residential, heritage, hospitality and mixed-use projects in Perth and country Western Australia. Known for her down-to-earth approach and wide-ranging professional and life experiences, architect Susie Hunt has a warm and engaging manner that manifests in the buildings and spaces she designs. And she specialises in architecture and interior design across a range of sectors and provides strategic advice on design and heritage issues. Susie employs a small in-house team of architects and interior designers inside Suzanne Hunt Architect and she works with trusted external consultants and professional builders, all of whom are selected for their expertise and suitability for each project. She prides herself on maintaining a highly personalised service for her clients from site selection, initial briefing and concept design through to construction, administration and project completion. Her work is strongly influenced by Western Australia's stunning landscapes, resulting in timeless buildings and spaces that are fit for purpose and beautifully detailed. And Susie brings a wealth of knowledge to the business of architecture, as well as running her own practice. She's actually worked at state and local government levels, and she currently sits on several executive boards, which I'll tell you about in a minute. She, uh, you know, this wealth, like it's just such a diverse range of experience and she packs a lot into a very busy life. And as a result, Suzanne Hunt Architect delivers projects that are financially viable, environmentally sustainable, and aesthetically innovative. So this, you know, for me, I hear Susie and I really want you to think about with any architect or designer that you're choosing, that You really seek to find somebody who can work with you in this way. You know, Susie sees that one of her most important roles as an architect is to help her clients enjoy their creative journey. And I'm finding that this is a consistent thing with the the great designers, the great builders, the great professionals. This is their goal, that their clients enjoy the journey, that they, they see the privilege and the opportunity of creating you know, a beautiful space and a beautiful environment for their client. And so their goal is that their client also gets to enjoy not only the outcome that they're creating together, but also the journey of creating it. And Susie really listens carefully so that she can nurture and shape her client's dreams. And this is a quote of Susie. She says, great architecture enriches our lives physically, psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally. And it leaves a legacy for generations to come. And it's important that we get it right together. Susie wants the architecture she designs to express harmony, warmth, and a calm simplicity. Now, she's also, the, she's been the president of the West Australian chapter of the Australian Institute of Architects. Uh, she's a board member of Curtin University Architecture Advisory Board, board member of Rottnest Island Authority, a committee member of the Australian Institute of Architects Gender Equity Committee, and she's also a host of this the television show Australia by Design. She writes a blog on architects, design, interiors, living, building in Western Australia, gender equity in architecture, and a raft of other subjects, and she writes for media as well. So she's, she's a very, very busy woman and uh, she has some seriously fantastic knowledge to share in this interview. So settle in and let's dive into the questions. So, Susie, thank you so much for being with me today. It's so exciting to actually meet you and speak with you. I've watched you from afar for a long time. You do a huge amount to advocate for the architectural industry and for architecture in general. And uh, and I'm always chuffed to meet another woman in architecture powering along and building a business and a, and a profile. So, um, you've had your practice for 14 years, which is actually a really long time in this game, isn't it, in terms of a solo you know, a practitioner building up a business. Can you tell us a bit about what that's been like, how you've managed to sustain it, Juggle with, you know, everything else that you've got going on in your life?
2: Look, um, my practice, I set this practice up um, at a pretty pivotal time in my career. So I was just turned 40 and I divorced and I had four very small children. So the youngest was 22 months and I have twins who are four and a six-year-old. It was out of necessity I set it up. I had a practice with my former partner who was an interior designer. It was a necessity, but I had a very non-linear career. And I now realise in my 30s, when I had my children, there was no way I could work for a firm, um, primarily because I had children and no one would employ me part time. And so I had got quite bitter and twisted in that period. And I was really feeling, you know, disillusioned. The career trajectory of men in my year was just zooming forward and I had gone very forward and done well and then all of a sudden just plateaued. And I, I actually remember losing my confidence completely. And then we had a business we were doing quite well. I did a lot of the accounting at that time and a lot of the um, the, the background, a lot of getting the work. So it was really good training. We'd had – and it was successful. So when I divorced, I walked away from that and had the children. And so when I first divorced, I literally was just in this panic, oh, my God, how am I going to support my children? So I went back to old people, um, old officers, and, and you know people that I'd worked for and, in government, and, and ended up doing setting up the practice, as well as working for the Department of Justice at and doing architectural advice at the um, Fremantle, uh, at the Women's uh, Prison. Cool. Uh, that. Sometimes I think things in life happen and you go, that's there for a reason, you know, like that was there but the grace of God go I. And I realised at that time, and I will get to the answer to your question, but I realised at that time that without education, we as women, as mothers, if we're left in this predicament, have have no other alternatives. I mean, I remember looking at women who were no different to me except I'd been born into a family that could afford and I had a, had a good education so I could go and work. But, you know, at that time I remember thinking what would I do for my children to to keep them fed and alive? I would have done anything. And that's what a lot of women in prison are about, you know. And so that was a, that was sort of a little thing. So I did that. That was a really good part-time job. And then I set up my business. My nonlinear career path with children actually in the end and still to this day protects me. So in a market in WA, which is terrible, um, that nonlinear career with heritage advice and you know, different advisory roles and working in justice, that is the thing that's allowed me to still be practising and and still have work in a market in WA, which is some say the worst in 20 years.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah, and your story is very similar to a lot of um, women that I speak to who are still working in in architecture because they have had to zig and zag in order to find what, work that could accommodate the other demands that they had on their lifestyle and their financial needs and those types of things. I've had a similar um, experience with doing lots of different types of roles within the field of architecture, and uh, and it and it not always looking how I thought it was going to look, but definitely it it was serving a purpose for the time that it was. So, um, so yeah, it's fantastic to have you share your personal experience in that regard in terms of the feedback and concerns that I get from homeowners a lot of a lot of the concern around using an architect is that they only design houses for wealthy people Um, it's an elitist um, industry Um, I'm going to lose control of my project they're only going to design something for me that's going to blow my budget you know I'm sure you've heard all of these types of complaints as well how do you talk to these objections how do you you know what are your thoughts on these things?
2: Well, one of the things is is the advocacy role in the paper. Um, two, I'm a presenter on Australia by Design, and that is really trying. And I and I got involved in that primarily because that is interviewing architects in their architecture with their homeowners, and it's showing that architects can do you know Optus Stadium, or they can do a little tiny addition to a heritage cottage, and and it's a it's a very accessible format. Um, we're coming up to season three coming so next year, uh, later this year. Um, and so that's one way um, I've, I've been doing it. I think it's really just it's everyone, it's like every profession. Some people will only do high end, some people only do heritage, some people. I mean, for people in residential though, the market is too small to say I only do high end. But the difficulty that we have is to transition that, the, the amount of work we do, into very small projects. And So, um, I mean, yesterday I went to a meeting for a, you know, potential job which was very high end, on the river, beautiful, no budget, to going to a local council, advocating and showing a design that we did for affordable housing for the Department of Communities. So that's all in a day, you know, and I think that the design thinking skills, and I'm trying to work out a more accessible way to actually talk about design thinking skills, but that ability to look at things laterally, pull in all these different threads and make a really beautiful piece of architecture that is on budget um, is, is something that we're trained to do. And that's why we go to university for so long. That's why there's five years of planning. That's why we do the two or three years of experience to do our registration. I think the issue with budget, and, you know, I, I don't think there's an architect around who would say that every single one of my projects is exactly on budget. But I like to think in residential, the work that we do is that, first of all, we have a conversation, which is the beer budget champagne brief. So the client comes in, this is my budget, and then the champagne brief. And then they say later, oh, well, actually, that wasn't really my budget. My budget was higher. Like, you know, if you're going to go and see an architect, be honest, because it, yeah, it's, it's a it's a relationship of trust, you know, and it's the beer budget. And I always say, let's find a really nice bottle of wine that you like. Let's find that wine budget that you go, okay. There's there's, there's that juggle the whole time, you know, and that's going all the time, as you know. And so I always say, if you're going to go to an architect, do a lot of research, which I know you say, do a lot of research, ring them, speak to them, meet with them, ask them about the process, know that it's an intimate relationship, it's a long relationship, sometimes longer than some people's marriages, not mine, but um, <laughs> sorry, I was a bit long. Um, so, so actually understanding who that person is, look on their website, ask to go and speak to clients, not necessarily the ones they give you, but the ones of their projects on their website, I drive past, ring people, get to know them. And then when you employ them, you are paying them a good fee, hopefully. Trust them. And if you feel, though, that that they're not listening to you, then stop. And I only heard yesterday, someone came to me and said, oh, my daughter went to an architect, a well-known architect here. He did da, 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 da. He discarded everything that she wanted and wasn't, you know, didn't listen to her beautiful piece of art, but just it's not her house and, you know, they're really unhappy and they'd never go back to this person again or whatever. And I think it's, as you said, there's always bad apples You know, there might always be someone, but find the person that you have the synergy with and trust them. Listen to them when they say, look, yes, you can have all those things, but you can't have this. This is over your budget. They are not telling you that because it makes it easier for them. It's one of the trickiest tug of wars that you have and you know I've got a client at the moment, and they're saying, oh, but I want this and this and this and this, but this, this, this we can't go over this budget. And like, well, you've got to listen to me. Reduce, and you know, it comes down, as you know, to either size or material or materials. So either reduce your size, reduce the scope of type of materials that you're using, or increase your budget. So it is a table ball the whole time, and it's just, it's the it's the most hardest part about our job, I think.
0: Yeah, I've often said to people that I think being a mum equips me really well to say, no, no, you can't have that.
2: <laughs> so, true. so true, And it's funny, like I was thinking when I was um, thinking about this interview that, that, you know, I see all the stuff that I've done because you never reflect, you don't have time. I mean, I've got these four kids who are still at home or one was in camera and now she's home again. And and you go, oh, my God, that has been such, my life of this up and down has been such good training. For just this all over the place, you know, people saying, I'm going, no, you know, and I am quite, and I'm very honest, I have to say, sometimes they're probably a little too honest and I think people expect you not to be that honest and say, look, you just can't afford this. Yeah. I'll show you something that's beautiful and you will get beautiful architecture and it will be your house, but you don't actually need, and, you know, the classic thing at the moment is that everyone goes, oh, every one of my children needs an ensuite. <laughs> and if they might have boys, the boys can share, but my daughter needs her own ensuite. I mean, I have literally got an ensuite now which is behind me. I've got an ensuite now and I, I and I share it with my partner. I've never had my own ensuite. And I'm 55 years of age. Like seriously, why does a 9-year-old girl need her own ensuite? And and people don't realize, you know, that's 12 square meters. And if you think about the cost of the actual cost of fitting it out with tiles and toilets and you know, let's just say it's $4,000 a square meter. That's actually $48,000. Do you, is that worth it? Can your children share?
0: <laughs> and it's so hard. It's so hard, isn't it, when it's compared against an industry which is just punching out houses at a very low rate with very little intention, very little care, and consideration of their long-term impact on their occupants and the built environment overall. And so when you're always comparing against that base, you know, lowest common denominator, um, which, you know, is, it's very difficult then. there's, It's always going to be a hard argument because it's um, – you know, it's they're just not in the same realm as each other. But it, for a homeowner who's obviously trying to work out the best investment of their budget, then they're always going to naturally compare those two things and think, why can I get that for $800 a square metre, but I have to pay for an architect design product, you know, I have to pay three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 a square metre. So it's that, it's, I I feel like they should just be two entirely different, you know, there's they're such different processes mm-hmm. and it's it's very difficult, isn't it, to sort of, I suppose, have conversations that, that are are meaningful in that environment, you know, and, and um and that are really understandable. But I think that advice of reducing your scope, looking at your materials or increasing your budget. And I find generally homeowners arrive and their budget's sort of fifty to seventy five percent of where it really needs to be, there's a some sort of misconception that's been built up around budgets that is fed by a lot of other, you know, factors in terms of like those project home builders or reality TV. And um and so it does become very it's a very difficult conversation. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? So I know too, the whole conversation of architects, building designers, drafts people is something that you deal with a lot too. It's one of the most common questions that I get, who do I use? Um, you know, I'm just doing this project. Do I need an architect or I'm doing this? Could a drafts person do this? How do you respond to that conversation of who is the right fit for uh, this solution that I'm trying to find?
2: Look, we get a lot of inquiries for very small, like you know, a bathroom fit out or something, and I, yeah, I, I think there, there is a scope, but I'm finding that in the past I would have said over under a certain budget, you know, you go to a project builder, but now I'm finding that in fact architects are being becoming more flexible, and and often I will forward projects to other architects, and we're doing much smaller projects now too, like. We're doing a job that might be three million, but we're also doing a little renovation that's four hundred thousand or something, five hundred thousand. Um, I think that the, I suppose one of the things I say to people when we're talking about square meter rates, just going back before, is that a builder is going to give you that a builder will say eighteen hundred dollars a square meter. That means you have no tiles, that that's no interiors. You know, I mean, and so it's we're actually I think we're comparing. It's not apples for apples. And I, I actually think that you, architects can build for $3,000 a square metre. You know, we can design and build for $3,000 a square metre. One of the ways that we do smaller projects we bring the builder in much earlier. So we will work, do the concept, we will work with the builder much earlier than we would in a normal project. Um, but I think it's also looking at what the scope is. So when, when I talk, we as architects, we talk about total project costs. So I always say to people, it's not just the money that the build is it's not just your interior fit out. it's not you know it's actually making sure that you've got curtains and what's your landscaping all these other costs that are not really related to me but I try to list them all so that when they know the total project cost so their budget they might come in and say it's a million dollars let's just say when you do we've just done a calculation of this a 1.1 million dollar house by the time you add on the approval processes the engineers that we require. and This is a project in the southwest. It's um, not. It's on scheme water, but doesn't have sewerage. You know, it's in a fire zone. So all these other consultants, the approvals that we need, which are building, a uh, planning approval, building license, energy efficiency, self-certification, all these things, and you add that on, that goes up to about 1.5 million. So I try to be very clear. That's actually, and my fees, that is, that's actually. The cost, your total project cost. So I think sometimes that's where it's confusing. And I think when you hear really bad stories about, oh, my God, we used an architect and it went over budget, and it's because no one, and, and it's incumbent on us as architects, to say the total project cost. So do the schedule. I mean, we also or, or, or always have a QS, a quantity savar in the early stages um, before we have a builder. And that QS, we work off a square metre rate, which we know for total project cost, not all the consultants but the build total project you know curtains carpets whatever and then we actually say to clients we will work off the area that you're giving us and we will use that square meter rate at the end of projects we often go back and we will check if our square meter rate was close to budget and it generally was so we we do do a little bit of a self-analysis on that and if it isn't then we work out where that went wrong you know and then if you say that at the beginning, this is the square metres. We've done a little sketch, a concept sketch. This is the square metres. This is the total project cost. That's how much your project is going to be plus fees. And they go, oh, my God, that's over. And I said, okay, well, I went to a building. He said 1800 I said, but he doesn't have any of your fit out. And you can't move, move into a house without your fit out. You know, you need a kitchen or a toilet, you know. And so – I think it's being very upfront about what the prices, what the costs are, and also for people to be realistic. You know, you, if you want Travertine everywhere, your square metre rate's going to go up. I see people, I mean, if you want to know, we're looking at so a really small project at the moment, and they said, oh, we go to IKEA. I said, well, you could go to IKEA and do the kitchen. And so you go and do that. And then we actually got it priced by a cabinet maker." for the same finishes and the cabinet maker was actually cheaper so I mean that doesn't happen all the time but we do try to take people on that journey and it is holding hands and I think that's the I think that's very important for architects to actually be able to talk in an accessible way talk in a language that people understand but also listen know yep. listen is the most important thing
0: so Susie you touched on some of the ways that you help clients ensure that they're their design is moving in alignment with their budget. So, obviously, your experience in lots of different project types would give you a lot of data in terms of budget performance. You mentioned the QS. You mentioned also bringing in builders early. How So, how do you assess what type of, uh, I suppose, budget guidance a project is going to need and how you're going to support the client in making sure that your design meets their budgetary requirements? Uh,
2: probably around their budget expectations um, for a large project say over you know one and a half million or you know we would actually work off a square meter rate and we would get the in the first so we we work under four phases of concept or schematic design detailed design or design development contract documentation and administration and I'm sure your you know viewers know what they, they are um, but in the first phase of concept design we will be doing a lot of hand drawings and models, and we will work off a square meter rate that we feel is appropriate from our experience with other projects. Is appropriate for their project to give them a budget estimate and try and thinking all the time what their budget is. So we're trying to work within that as well. Before we put in for planning approval, we always get a quantity surveyor to just do a price. Now the reason that might be two thousand dollars, but that put he is they're always generally he uh, is going to always be very, very conservative. And they will have 15% contingency in the design phase and 15% in the the, um, administration or, you know, when the building phase, construction phase. And I think that gives people get a bit, oh, my God, that's so over budget. Okay, well, that's, you know, we can easily bring it back. So I always say to people, don't get too scared when it's over. You know, don't get too scared because that's okay because we've always, it's better to be over and work backwards than under and be on site and it's over. So let's let's deal. With, I like to deal with all the problems at the beginning. So we work forward, and that's a, a continual tussle. So then we'll do a bit more design development. We'll get all the engineers involved, and then we actually start to. We might bring a builder in at that stage, uh, an independent builder. The way on large projects, we talk to three or four builders. I ring around referees that the clients meet them, see if they have a synergy with them. Um, and then we we'll, we can bring them in earlier at the end of the documentation phase when we've you know obviously documented where we would sometimes go to tender for example we don't generally do tender for high-end residential residential to be honest but if we were going to tender that's the phase at building license we will get the builder that we've selected to completely price it as as in a fixed price but we also bring the qs back and we ask them to do a price so the builder doesn't know the QS's price, but we know that the QS is going to be conservative. And if the builder is higher or lower, we can say, well, we get the QS to check the builder's full estimate and they will then go, oh, that he's over here, or actually he's too low here. He's not going to be able to do it because of the current rates are this. Um, and then it's up to the builder. convince us all that he can do it for that price and there's not going to be any dramas on site. My aim is to have no dramas on site and that and you know that doesn't work all the time. But also my aim is also that at the end of the project we're all friends. You know that's that's the aim and you know very okay very occasionally it doesn't work like that. But you know that's the aim of it. And so if we're on a much smaller project like a four hundred and fifty thousand dollar house extension that we're doing at the moment, we've actually the client wanted to go to tender, I said tenders to when you tender on a very small project everyone's just fee bidding they're not going to read the drawings you're going to have dramas on site because they're going to have all these exclusions and so we actually spoke to three builders we picked one with really good referees the client met them and they're now pricing it so we can again bring them in much earlier and builders call that ECI or early contractor early contractor involvement um, on large projects they're trying to do that more now but I think that's a great thing because the builder becomes part of the design team so when we're documenting they go oh look yeah I know you're going to do frame construction there or reverse brick veneer but you know we actually think this is cheaper at the moment but this is better or we're getting better you know whatever so I bringing them in as part of the design team my I say to clients if we do bring a builder in in the design team in that detailed design phase and you don't use them you are going to have to pay them because they've given us really good advice so but we generally use them so it's okay
0: yeah so that's It's something actually that I'm finding um, a lot of builders are now more interested in doing. They'll charge for their estimates but they'll work with you as part of the design team from an early stage and they give you then the option to walk away, you know, and I think that it's a much better environment to consolidate the relationship and to ensure that you're all communicating really well. And as you say, they become then really across the design, they understand it, they've informed the buildability of it and ultimately the client ends up with a level of certainty around the fact that they'll get what they actually wanted and what they've invested in sort of creating. So you being in practice for some time, uh, one of the lovely benefits of this is that you obviously get to see family homes get lived in, get tested and, and see how successful certain design measures have been and those types of things. What are your thoughts on what a family home needs in order to be functional for its family particularly over the long term as kids grow and change and family situation has different demands on a home
2: so one of the things that the practice does we do a lot of aging in place we do a lot of first home additions like someone said i really want to use an architect and you know i'm having my young children to transition homes where kids are nine and ten then 18 to 19 and then much older where they're going look I'm either in my, you know, 60s or 70s, so we call that sort of an ageing in place, and that means there's a whole lot of different requirements. So if you look at the first few phases where people are having, you know, they've got children, I say, you know, with my children now who are 22 and 21, 21-year-old twins and 16, that, that you, it's actually really important to understand those phases and to when you're designing a house, it's a very big investment. And so to actually think about how you can transition through the phases. So people will come and they say, oh, my kids are really little. I want to play room right very close to the kitchen where I can see them. And I said, "Yep, yeah, that's great." Right. What happens in three years when they're actually not going to be at that phase, you know? And and how are you going to arrange that? And what's going to happen when? Which happened to me. I have two stepchildren as well now. So we had six children in six years, and we moved into a blended family house, which is every room had to be exactly the same size so no children could feel like they were left, you know, like every, every bed was the same. So everything, we were so particular. But of course now kids are leaving with all these, all these rooms, like, oh my God, you know. And the other thing was that I remember my older child just started to drink. I mean, these are little things that come into design and from experience, you know, he started drinking and of course when they're 18, you're going, well, I'd rather they actually entertained at home. I don't want to see it, but at least I know I can call an ambulance. And yet my 13-year-old, was going, this is a really good game. What's that game that you put that thing on your drink and put on the head? I'm like, I'm going to tell the guys at school this. I'm like, no. So I realised what we didn't have and we now do is an an area where they can go and be apart from the house that you can actually entertain. It could be be a pool cabana, for example, um, that they can be there. You can still hear them. You don't have to see it all. But that, say that pool cabana could in fact have a kitchenette in it and it could in fact be if one of them is, lives overseas and has children, they can come back and they can stay there. So rooms have a flexibility over the long term. So a playroom now might be a study later, might be um, a snug later on, you know, like those sort of, so every room. So that's, that's the first thing. Flexibility and agility of design I think are pivotal in long-term large investments in residential. I think also with increasing power prices and and water usage, I think it's really important that the building is sustainable, environmentally sustainable. And so I think think architects are are very good at this, um, is that designing, most architects, designing buildings that consider orientation and consider climate. And WA, our design is really um, very climate-driven. You know, I don't think people understand. I mean, if we look at WA as a place, you know, it's Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria together. So people go, what is your climate? It's like, well, what is the climate between North Queensland and Southern Victoria? You know, that it's, we're a third of the country but, and a lot of desert in the middle. So a climate problem, if I'm just talking about Perth and, and the southwest where most of the population is, you know, we have temperatures in Perth from minus two or minus three to 45 You know, and so there's this huge list thing. We have humidity, and then we have very dry heat. We have a howling gale. We're the the second windiest city in the world. So, you know, I think, and and in different parts, if you're in the hills in Perth, then you have really cold easterlies, and you never get the sea breeze. But in where I am in Swanbourne, which is near the coast, you get howling sea breezes, just howling, and we never, and the easterlies hot. So. Every project we do, we go on the Bureau of Meteorology wind vanes and we look at where the site is and we think, what are the wind vanes for that site? Then we look at orientation of the sun and I'm always explaining to people that the sun in summer, you know, rises in the southeast and then comes very high and then goes down and, and sets in the southwest. And that sun in the southwest in WA is really hot. It's low and it's hot and in summer it's you know north of north of east and and you know low, and it's lower so what we're trying to do is shield those with your windows from the sun in summer but in summer in winter we want the sun to come into your house that means that you're not having your lights on all the time that you're not having your heating or cooling on all the time For for the wind, we want to have protective courtyards that allow you to to actually entertain outside without being blown away. Um, So those passive design principles, I think, are impubitably important. And I don't think if there was one real difference between maybe an architect and a building designer or a draftsman is it's that. I think architects generally will think of orientation. Then when we're talking about active so um, environmental solutions like solar panels. I mean, we're putting solar panels and everything, and so we're thinking about different forms of it. And, and obviously, look, you know, we have a we most of our water is from desalination in WA, so there is some aquifer use. So it's also looking at low flow, you know, all the other the, the other things that we do as taps and water usage. But if we can get the passive system right, that will save money in the long term. So people might go, oh, it costs more to have an architect. I said, yes, except that you're long, if you look at life cycle costing. And so I said to you earlier, you know, before we started filming, that across the road from me there's a project home being built. North facing at the street, there's not one window into the bedrooms. All the windows are on the side and they have to have um, film because they're overlooking. Nothing looking out to the north. So that's just poor design. You know, and it, and it's going to cost the people who live there more to live in.
0: That's very true. There's some great tips there for designing for the long term. And I think, you know, more and more I'm talking to the UA community about the importance of thinking about The cost of your home over the decades that you'll be living at it and how the investment you make now will offset that and if we can think about you know it's it's it is very tricky because we're obviously dealing with one bucket of money now that we're wanting to build or renovate with and that bucket of money that's going to maintain is something that's going to come in the future but we can we can i've i've seen some homeowners actually make the assessment of, well, if my bills are lowered, then I'm going to have more um, money to put into my mortgage and I'm going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And they've done, you know, like I had this fantastic guest on the podcast recently, Cameron Munro, who's a, who is a mechanical engineer, I think by trade. And they did a passive house extension to a weatherboard cottage in in Melbourne. And he, he was doing the assessment of, okay, I'm going to save this in my electricity bills. That means, you know, and, and really offsetting everything. So I think that it is it is something that you can explore as an idea. And it's just having that long-term thinking about things. So I think that that's some, some great advice. So I can't thank you enough for your time. It's just been a joy to talk to you. You're a very, very wise and clever woman and uh, clearly have had uh, yeah, a, a lovely zigzagging career. That served you very well and and, uh, obviously enables you to serve your clients very well. So thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom so generously. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much and you're doing an amazing job. So thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and, uh, yeah,
0: call me again. Mm -hmm. Cheers, Susie. Isn't Susie brilliant? Such a diverse range of career experience which positions her so well to understand her clients and be a fantastic asset as an architect. Now head to the show notes or to the blog on Undercover Architects website. I've got links there about how you can find Susie and Chris and how you can get in touch with them as well. And be sure to reach out and thank them if you enjoyed their interview. I know that my guests always love hearing feedback on how their knowledge has helped you. Now, as you can imagine, there was a lot that I had to leave out of these interviews, and so both of the interviews on this podcast are actually edited versions of my full conversations with Chris and Susie. We dived into a heck of a lot more uh, together, so you can find the full interviews. They're now featured inside my online course for Australian homeowners, how to get it right in your reno or new home. And I have them there as a special bonus for members. Now, if you're thinking about renovating or building your family home, you're already researching and planning, or you're even in the design stages, you're going to want to check out the online courses I have called how to get it right in your reno or new home and the welcome home course. So how to get it right is tailored for Australian homeowners. And in the welcome home course, I team up with award-winning American architect, Eric Reinhold to create a specific course for American homeowners, both courses they take you through my step-by-step system from the very start to the very finish of your renovation or building project. And I'll explain a bit more about that in a minute. Look, as Undercover Architect has grown as an online business, i really love being able to reach and connect with homeowners from all corners of the globe. I've got almost 25 years industry experience in design, building and renovating in Australia. And what I've found is that this step-by-step system of mine for any renovation or new building project, the one that I've been using in client projects and in my own projects for all of that time, when I actually teach this system to you, you like what I see time and time again is how it can help you as a homeowner save time, money and stress in your project. And so that's what these courses do. When you have the steps to follow, the map for your journey ahead, you can then move confidently towards that future home that you're dreaming of and not waste any time or money. When you know that that step-by-step system has been created over decades of experience in hundreds of hundreds of family homes like yours, you can save so much stress in your project and create a home that works and feels great. And when you have the steps, as well as the professional know-how, design knowledge, tools, resources, and guides, you can seriously shortcut your journey. You can enjoy your experience and you can avoid the heartache and drama so many endure. If you're keen to make your journey simpler, be confident in the home that you're creating. Is actually achievable and know the steps to get you there, these online courses are the way. In them, I've literally packaged up what is in my head and my heart from almost 25 years experience to show you the way to your future family home. Do you want to learn more about the courses? Well, if you're an Aussie, if you're an Australian homeowner, head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash get it right. And if you're an American homeowner, head to undercoverarchitect.com forward Forward slash welcome home, and you'll be able to find out all the information about each of those courses there. And I've got a special bonus for the gorgeous UA community podcast listeners. This is the first time I've ever done this, actually. Just use the code podcast. All right, the word podcast. You have to type it in to the coupon code when you go through and buy. You'll immediately access fifty dollars off. Okay, so you'll get a fifty dollars saving when you use the coupon code podcast. So those links again are Australians undercoverarchitect.com forward slash get it right and americans undercoverarchitect.com forward slash welcome home as always thank you so much for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally until next time bye